You've joined the midweek edition of Legal AF, where we have cultivated the most consequential stories at the intersection of law and politics. You may know what happened, but we explain what happens next. On today's show, we address what is going on with the Manhattan DA's office grand jury criminal investigation of Donald Trump and the Stormy Daniels hush money cover up. And we'll, and we'll talk about a number of things. Why is the grand jury taking a month long break? Is it cold feet by the prosecutor or something else? What can we make of the last witness before the break being the former publisher of the National Enquirer, David Pecker? And what could the second crime that they need be? And is it possible that the grand jury is looking at more than Stormy Daniels? And does it matter that Donald Trump seems to be ordering the grand jury around in his social media posts? Then we're going to turn to Jack Smith. And now that he's successfully stripped the executive privilege away from Trump's national security advisor, intelligence director, homeland security advisor, Mark Meadows, the vice president, when is his charging decision going to be made and what is it going to be focused on? Is it going to be some sort of conspiracy around national security violations and Donald Trump? Is it Mar-a-Lago or Jan 6? We'll get to the bottom of it. And then finally, we have developments in the E. Jean Carroll defamation and civil rape case that starts in just less than a month, the judge having just ruled that Donald Trump is not going to be able to get out on summary judgment and have dismissed the last defamation claim that happened after he was president. We'll talk about what that means for the trial on on, uh, on moving forward. This is the midweek edition of Legal AF. I am Michael Popak. I'm joined every Wednesday by my co-anchor, former top prosecutor, current amazing lawyer, Karen Freeman Ignifolo. You've seen her everywhere, but she's exclusive today to Legal AF. And our episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Karen, <laughs> how are you? Great to see you. Good to see it's you. Always, so much going it's on. It's great to see you. It's not the law and order set today for you. It doesn't seem <laughs> to be some sort of green room. Where are you? Home. You're home. Isn't, I'm home is it home a nice? Is it home a nice place to be sometimes? <laughs> the one good thing that came out of the pandemic is the work from home, the ability to work from anywhere. I love it. I would never go back to being forced to only be in an office. I love that I can work in different places wherever I am. So a lot more flexibility. That's true. However, I will tell you that I was in 60 Center Street, the main courthouse that we'll, we talk a lot about, at least on civil side. And I had been back in court. I was at Second Circuit arguing an appeal about eight months ago, but I was first time in that courthouse before since before pandemic. And I loved as a trial lawyer being backed in that courtroom, in that courthouse. I just love the smell of it. I love being around it. Um, there was like one person on every floor, but it, it was fun to be back as a practicing lawyer and trial lawyer. It was fun to be back inside of a courtroom and not inside of a Zoom box. But this is what we do. And podcasting is made so much easier by our ability to do everything remotely. Let's talk about your office and the Manhattan DA's office, because, you know, we get some um, understandable criticism for trying to predict when things are going to happen in cases. And when we're wrong or we're off or the timeline is a little bit skewed, you know, people get upset. And I understand that. We'd like to be right every time. If you if you look back at our, I don't know, 250 episodes of Legal AF stretching back two and a half years you know, we're we're more right than wrong. I mean, we're probably batting 950 if you look at old episodes. Now, sometimes the timing gets a little bit screwed up. Like we think this is the week for the indictment. No, this is the week for the indictment. And now we've got 
what we've now learned is that there is going to be a scheduled break in the action because of the holidays in New York, which as a New Yorker, and Karen will weigh in on this as well, is very important to New Yorkers, more so than probably any major city in America. New Yorkers take their holidays really seriously, regardless of your religious beliefs. We were joking before the podcast today about if you own a car in New York, and you have to you have to alternate side of the street park, moving your car from one side of the street to the other to allow for street cleaning. You will learn very quickly, regardless of your background, all of the major Jewish holidays, and even some of the minor ones, because those are the days that you have to move your car. So again, holidays, really, really important. And they were important to Alvin Bragg and the prosecutor's office. I mean, one of the things that prosecutors or lawyers like to do is keep the grand jury and the jury happy and content. It's the care and feeding of the of the jury because you want them to be in the right frame of mind to make decisions that are important. So you make sure they get their lunch on time. You make sure you're ordering from the right restaurants. You give them breaks. You let if those that are smokers or or fumers, they can go out and do that for a bit. You know, you, they take a coffee break because, you know, it's a hard job and it's very emotionally draining to be on any type of jury. So what we've learned this week is that in January, they promised, the prosecutors promised that there would be a gap for Passover and Easter and spring break so that all the people's vacations and uh, family obligations wouldn't be negatively impacted. And so we are apparently now on that break. They got one more witness in, and we'll talk about it on the show today, David Pecker, the former publisher, uh, really disgraced publisher of the National Enquirer, and what his link through Michael Cohen, through Kellyanne Conway, is back to Donald Trump and that Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up. Um, and then the grand jury's got other stuff to do, and apparently they're going to be doing other stuff this week, having nothing to do with Donald Trump on other crimes and other matters, not, not involving him. And then they're going to take their break, which they're allowed to do. They've been working kind of hard. Then they're going to come back at the end of April. And then we're going to be back with the indictment watch, as our co-anchor Ben Mysalis likes to call it, at the end of April, in the beginning of May. Now, with that timeline, we're pushing up against Fawny Willis. Because if Fawny Willis in Fulton County looks like she's going to be presenting to her regular grand jury in May. So it looks like May is going to be super active. But let's start by unpacking it all with my co-anchor, Karen Freeman McNifolo, formerly number two in the very office that's prosecuting and investigating Donald Trump for Stormy Daniels. And let me go through a couple of questions to frame it. One, is the break unusual and should we read anything into it? Let's start there. No. <laughs> okay. It's like everybody should just climb off the ledge. It's not a, it's not a sign in your your mind then, Karen, that they're, they're getting cold feet about the indictment, that the, the case is cratering, buying into any of the attempts by Donald Trump to draw Alvin Bragg into a footfall of any type, right? No. I mean, look, there's a couple of things. First of all, everything is happening in secret, right? So this is a grand jury by its very nature is secret. The only reason we know about this is because of witnesses who have gone in and either have been spotted by reporters who then report on it or who have talked about it publicly. So the only reason we know anything about the grand jury has nothing to do with the DA's office telling us anything or the courts telling us anything. It's really just things that you can glean. So if a witness goes in in the afternoon, you know it's an afternoon grand jury because grand juries sit in the afternoon. Or if a witness goes in on Monday and Wednesday, they usually 
these special grand juries usually sit for two or three mornings or afternoons per week. So we know, for example, based on when witnesses have gone in, it's a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday afternoon grand jury, things like that, that again, nobody's announced anything like that, but we know it because we can surmise it based on facts that we see. And so it's, and so the same thing with a, a long-term grand jury when so, so grand juries, just to back up a minute, the way to charge someone, the only way to charge someone with a felony in New York, I shouldn't say the only way, the, the main way to, to go forward with a felony in New York is with a grand jury indictment. A defendant can also waive indictment by the grand jury and then be prosecuted. But, but it's, it's, you have a right to have a grand jury indict you if a prosecutor wants to prosecute you for a felony. And so you go into a grand jury. Now there's always uh, about between four and six grand juries happening in Manhattan at all times. And some of them are two-week grand juries where they sit all day for two weeks. Some are four-week grand juries where they sit half days, like there's a morning grand jury, an afternoon grand jury. And there's, there's different grand juries that sit that hear just the routine cases that come in and out of the office. However, some cases can't be uh, can't can't be presented in either that two week or four week time frame, and there are some cases that you know are going to be long term investigations. You don't know if they're going to go anywhere, and so what you do is you call for a special grand jury, and special grand juries sometimes can can sit for eighteen months or for six months, or depending on how long you want them for, you make an application to the court and you apply for a grand jury for a certain amount of time for a cer certain number of cases or or investigations, and then the grand jury sits and so what and they and they come up with a schedule and one of the things they look at are holiday schedules now the reason they're taking two weeks off has more to do with childcare than it does anything else because the public schools are off and the private schools are off during the two weeks that they have chosen is and it two, what, karen is it two weeks or a month i thought i've reading i'm reading no. it's closer so, to a month so the reason they're saying that so so people have decided that the grand jury so there's a there's thursday tomorrow and there's monday next week and people have decided for whatever reason and i'm not sure why that there will not be a vote on either of those days i still think there's a chance that there could be a vote tomorrow or monday i don't i haven't seen any indication that that couldn't still happen so i'm i am sort of a lone voice out there, I think, saying this, but I still think there's a chance. So uh, if you were, in other words, if you were the prosecutor, just because there is a scheduled vacation coming up doesn't mean that in the remaining days from then until now, Alvin Bragg couldn't call the grand jury back to vote. Well, they are coming in tomorrow and Monday. The reporting is that they're coming in to hear a different case. And right. they might be coming in to hear a different case, but that doesn't mean they're also not going to be charged and vote on this case. It doesn't take that long to charge and vote. It could take, I'd say in this case, I would probably leave an hour, uh, maybe hour and a half at most. But so you could, you, there could still be an indictment to, tomorrow or Monday in this case. But the reason I don't think it will go past Monday is because next Wednesday and Thursday are Passover. So you will lose certain grand jurors or 
at that point. And then you don't have a, you, you might not have a quorum, which would be, you need 16 for a quorum and you need at least 12 to vote to in favor of an indictment. And that cuts it a little close. And so I don't see it happening next Wednesday or Thursday. So, and then there's two weeks after that. And so that's why people are saying a month because they're saying we lost this week, we lose next week. And then two weeks after that, that's why people are saying it's close to but, a month. But, but they've missed your point. They've missed the KFA point, which is don't be, don't run after that shiny object. They could vote when they're back for the other work yes. before they go on their vacation. Yep. <laughs> so, so I would, I would, I would just, again, I don't want, I don't want people to say that I'm in any way saying, oh, they're going to indict or they're not going to indict. I just remember when I was uh, in the office and there, and we would, we had a few, um, or I should say a few, we had many super high profile matters like this that we kept on, on super lockdown. There was only maybe three or four people in the world that would know information. And, and, you know, you, you, it's a deliberate effort to keep it on super lockdown. And I just remember the reporting from excellent news reporting, so, you know, um, uh, like newspapers and outlets. And they just got it wrong, 100% wrong. And uh, you just sit there and scratch your head and think, where are they getting this from? You know, because I know what's happening and it's not that. So, I, you know, I, I really just think that there's still a possibility. And I, and I don't want to get like the Twitter comments, oh, I, you know, they keep saying it's happening and, and you oh, know. Oh, I addressed that in the beginning. <laughs> I, just want, I just, but you know what, I, I just, I'm not saying it is, I just, I just don't want anyone to, um, I don't put too much stock in, in what people are saying. Yes, there's a vacation. Yes, they're not going to sit Passover, but there's still two days they could sit or it's going to happen after that. We, you know, it's funny. I think people like to hear about this, how we prepare for a show. Yes, we bring to the show our experience and knowledge, our body of work, our, our judgment from the years that we've been in practice. But, you know, we prepare. And before a show like this, um, you know, I think people would find it interesting where Karen and me and Ben, you know, the three lawyers on the team go back and forth with, you know, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this analysis? And and one of our other legal analysts out there is making this comment and then we'll say, no, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. That can't be it. It's got to be this. So we do sit around and and to prepare and to push each other as lawyers to, to to figure out and who's got intel and what are you hearing and what can we piece what's the puzzle pieces that we're putting together that's unique to legal af and that's what we do and th and the product of all of that is when it's it's go time it's air time you're seeing us talk about it and sometimes we're you know we're making the sausage together out loud you know in front of everybody and so and we're we're mainly you know we're mainly on point because of the judgment that we bring bring to bear here. Let me let me continue with the checklist of things I wanted to cover with you while we're doing the podcast today. So the the, the third one is um and you and I did a really a really great it was fun to do it with you a mini legal AF hot take of about 12 or 15 minutes that if people are interested is is still running and and a lot of people have seen it on the day of David Pecker being recalled by the grand jury to testify. Let me frame it and turn it back to you to give a a version of what we've what we've talked about. Oh, I love David that you're back Pe to calling him Pecker. Yeah, if I'm not, I'm not. Uh, yeah, because I started. P 
people gave me criticism. It was like, is it Picard or is it Pecker? I don't care. I'm going to call him Pecker. Let me see if I can do it consistently. If you're going to carry that name around, and I've got a name that gets butchered. You think Popak is easy? It's only because we've had a million episodes and Ben frequently calls me Popak 30, 40 times an episode. You know what? I beat you in terms of I beat you in terms of a last name that gets butchered. <laughs> we saw Chris Hayes. Poor Chris Hayes. He just one he had a cold that day, so he was having trouble, like you know, talking, and then he totally butchered butchered your name. But I don't. I and talked so, to a reporter the other day, and I and they put out a thing in the Daily Beast this morning, and I read it, and they wrote Karen Agrifolo. And I oh, was is like, that what it says in the Daily? Salty, well, no, they do we have it. No, no, oh, they corrected salty. it. I, I, salty, put I up the Daily Beast article. I want to talk about that. I, I cor- they corrected it online. I, I said, come <laughs> All right. on. You know? All right. At least there was I guess a- you can't pronounce it. You can't pronounce it, but you can spell but, it. But but let, let's stay on that. I'll wrap it into Pecker. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Because Pecker, Pecker is connected to Cohen, who's connected to Kellyanne Conway. It's a lot of hard Ks and C consonants here. Kellyanne, Pecker, Cohen, and all of that. And they're all they're all together, and it seems to be the focus or one of the main thrusts of the investigation related to Stormy Daniels is because it is, and we're this is not surmise or suspicion or we're predicting. This comes straight out of admissions by the publisher of the National Enquirer, the media company that published them, which was owned at the time by David Pecker, American Media Group, American Media International. And they entered into because of um, their campaign violations related to Donald Trump, they entered into a non-prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice, with the Southern District of New York, who was investigating in return for them cooperating and testifying ultimately against, it was against Michael Cohen at the time, but by extension by Donald Trump. And what they, under oath, told the Department of Justice is that David Pecker created the catch and kill program, offered it up to Kellyanne Conway and Michael Cohen in a meeting down in Florida, because he's a buddy, a BFF of Donald Trump, going back to when they were both playboy, you know, um, you know, bachelors down there. Um, and so, and, and the plan was, you find the people that said that they slept with Donald Trump, and I'll go pay them off, enter into confidential non-disclosure agreements and bury the story and never it'll never see the light of day the catch and the kill and they uh, and he offered it to Cohen and McDougal and the uh, uh, Cohen and Kellyanne Conway and the first test case was Karen McDougal who was a playmate a playboy playmate who like um Stormy Daniels claimed that she had had sex with Donald Trump you know when he was married and was going to go public with it and they paid her it was close. You can see the going rate, the market rate that Donald Trump was paying for these types of stories, $150,000. That one got paid directly, apparently, and Pecker admitted to it, as did his company, paid directly to um, uh, Karen McDougal. This one took a little bit of a circuitous route where it the um, Pecker connected Cohen to Stormy Daniels' attorney and the payment got made. Kellyanne Conway was in the room for the description of the of the plan of the of the program the scheme and that seems to be the focus. So, let's talk about it. He already testified in January, Pecker, to the grand jury. He's one of the first. There's nine people that went into the grand jury. He was one of the first of the nine people. 
focusing, I guess, on corroborating and bolstering Michael Cohen's testimony as a witness that has a little bit of baggage. And the first one that comes back in, because the grand jury asked for it or otherwise, after Robert Costello, former, I don't know what he was, I don't know if he was the lawyer for Michael Cohen, but he was something with Michael Cohen, had come in and, and crapped all over Michael Cohen because Costello took to a podium in front of the press and said he did. Um, and then they bring back uh, Pecker. So prosecutor hat, Karen Freeman Ignifolo. Why, why after January is Pecker back? What does it mean for Donald Trump? What does it mean for the case and how close they are to indictment? So Pecker testified three months ago or more. And that's a long time in the world of a trial or a grand jury. And if this was a normal trial where someone testified three months ago, you can, you could, in your summation, you can remind people of what the person said. But in this particular situation in a grand jury, there are no summations or closing arguments, and there's no opening statements either, and there's no cross-examination of witnesses. It's, it's really just a, you're supposed to just put in uh, bare bones evidence. But this has, this whole grand jury uh, presentation, which happens sometimes, by the way, this is not unusual. Uh, this happens sometimes where a defendant might testify or a defendant might ask for witnesses to come in. It, it sort of turns into a mini trial. And that's what this has, has turned into. And so Bob Costello presented information to the grand jury that was contrary to the people's theory, the, the government's, the prosecutor's theory of the case and uh, contradicts some of their evidence. And so what, what Alvin Bragg is doing now with his team is they're rebutting the evidence. And that's why they put David Pecker into the grand jury to rebut the evidence of what uh, Costello said. Uh, one other question I had was, are they waiting on records or documents? Is that why they haven't asked them to vote? Because, you know, perhaps to rebut some of what uh, Costello said, perhaps there's some other, um, not witnesses that they're waiting to call, but perhaps records. And, and you need a subpoena to get certain things and you need an open grand jury so they can't have voted yet in order to get to issue a, a grand jury subpoena. So there, there could be lots of reasons why things are happening, but all anyone is doing is giving it their best guess. And all I'm trying to do is give options that it could be this, it could be that, but it, but don't read certain things into it. What it, what it doesn't mean is that there's some problem or that this is unusual. And, you know, Donald Trump in his, in his truth social posted, I think it was today, uh, this this whole thing about I've gained such respect for this grand jury, you know, perhaps even the whole grand jury system, the evidence is so overwhelming in my favor and so ridiculously bad for the highly partisan and hateful DA that the grand jury is saying, hold on, we're not a rubber stamp, which most grand jurors are branded as being. We're not going to vote against a preponderance of the evidence or against a large number of legal scholars all saying there's no case here. You know, th this this message is so is is so chock full of of information 
Number one, the I have gained such respect for this grand jury and the grand jury system. He's trying to butter them up. He's hoping they'll see this and that somehow, because he knows that a week ago he threatened them, right? Or threatened the, the, the prosecutor and threatened death and destruction, you know, for, for, and that scared them, you know, they're humans, right? So they, they see someone with a, with a baseball bat to someone else's head and threatening death and destruction. Now that of course he walks that back on Hannity and claims that, that he didn't do that, but that's of course preposterous. But look um, at that. But, but don't, but don't but call on Karen. Don't drop, don't drop the last line. You let, you left out the last line. Let's put it back up. Drop the sick winch hut now. That's yeah, like a exactly. command to the grand yeah. jury. Well, yeah, he's definitely. So this to me was absolutely to the grand jury. This this is absolutely him talking to the grand jury. Like you just said, drop the sick witch hunt now. And again, he's buttering them up because he threatened them already. So now he's like, I'm not a bad guy. I, I think you're great. I have respect for you. Right. So so that's so that's sort of his, you know, his his statement to the grand jury and trying to get them to to do that but you know his what he's trying to do is mislead people to into thinking that the fact that there is this gap in time if there is one has anything to do with the fact that it's someone's having cold feet or that it's you know the case is not overwhelming in his favor you, you know all all the things he's saying in there that he's just again he's making it up but but this is very much him trying to influence the grand jury because he thinks that that's what this this what he what people are calling a delay what i'm calling is just the normal fits and starts of a grand jury i mean there are times in a long-term grand jury where where you have witnesses back to back to back to back and there are other times where you'll have you know, a month where you won't even hear about that case because A, they might be hearing another case and B, you might be waiting for other witnesses or other records or other things that you're trying to do in that grand jury. So, so a grand jury is not like a trial where it's every day and, and you know, you, you can predict it. The, the, uh, a long-term grand jury really sits and fits and starts. So this isn't a pause. It's not a delay. It's just a matter of logistics, timing. And again, I still think security is a huge issue for law enforcement and is one of the factors in determining when they're going to ask the grand jury to vote. So, yeah, I, uh, I agree with it. I th for me, Pecker's a bad sign for Donald Trump because I think he's not a fa he's the most unfavorable witness to Donald Trump. He had immunity at the federal level, <clears throat> as you've pointed out in prior podcasts. He automatically gets transactional immunity, so he can testify at free will, uh, freely without worrying about being prosecuted for what he says. And we know from the non-prosecution agreement and the um, and the factual uh, statements there, what his testimony is, which is all about, I devised the catch and kill program to help Donald Trump. Donald Trump knew all about it. Donald Trump funded it and ultimately paid it, whether he paid it directly or he did it through Michael <clears throat> Michael Cohen reimbursement. That is the nub of, of Pecker's testimony. And the jury wants to hear it again. Um, and we already know that uh, the, the, the Achilles heel for the case, if you will. And there's been reporting that, um, recently that like Alvin Bragg made a comment. I don't know if it's true or not. You don't have to comment on it, Karen, if you know anything that's insider, but that he originally had said about Michael Cohen, I am never going to prosecute a case where Michael Cohen is the lead witness. Now that apparently, if that's true, and that's been reported, 
he's come around, Alvin Bragg, after meeting with Michael Cohen a number of times and feeling better about him as a witness. But we know that Michael Cohen's credibility is at issue. And bringing in witnesses that can bolster aspects of his narrative, of his story, is a very good thing for the prosecution and a bad thing for Donald Trump. Because everybody who who isn't Michael Cohen that says the same thing and sings from the same page of the, of the hymnal as Michael Cohen about a certain meeting, about a certain event, like Kellyanne Conway and David Pecker, that's a bad day for Donald Trump. So it's not like it's a, a witness that is exculpatory, um, ten, you know, leading to the innocence of Donald Trump of, at all. It's a bad witness for Donald Trump. And and he could be whistling in the graveyard. We know why he tweets in social media these, these things. He wants to control the narrative for political purposes and for fundraising because he keep, he needs to keep those spigots on. And every time he's the he's persecuted, in his, you know, it's persecuted Donald Trump. He gets a million dollars a day in fundraising. That's why he does it. Um, of course, it backfires when judges, and we're going to talk about one a little bit later, when judges latch on to his social social media posts to um, to nail him from a legal perspective, because what works in the court of public opinion in social media does not usually work in a courtroom with a person in a black robe who controls your fate, either financially in a civil case or your 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 liberty in a criminal case. And so those worlds are all colliding and collapsing on Donald Trump. Because and you know every button he pushes that would usually work if he were not in the crosshairs of multiple indictments isn't working here because these are just exhibits that prosecutors are using and will continue to use against him. Just as we at the Midas at the Midas Touch Network are watching his social media to report on it and then try to integrate it into the legal cases, the prosecutors and the investigators are doing the same darn thing. And they're saying, how does this piece of new evidence today, like the social media truth thing that you read today, Karen, how does that fit into our case? Either goes to mens rea, criminal intent, or undermine a defense, or is it inconsistent with something else that he has said? You know, and so people are scrambling, but they're doing it for a purpose. It's not a game. It's it's for it's for these prosecutions. The last thing I want to cover before we move on to the other two segments tonight is this whole debate that's still raging about what could the second crime be? You need two crimes here in order for it to be a felony. Everybody agrees to that. The one crime of, we already have one crime we know is going to be charged if there's a if there's a charging decision, an indictment. It is going to be false books and records entry because of the cover-up around the $130,000 payment. The structured nature of the payment, it was multiple payments back to Michael Cohen. They grossed it up so that he wouldn't suffer any tax consequences. So they gave him like the 30 or 40% more. So if it wouldn't be seen as he wouldn't get hit on his income tax and have to pay more taxes. Also a sign of, of, uh, of criminal intent because you want to hide it and hide the nature of the transaction. So you got all of that going on. They over, they gave him a bonus and a kicker for having pulled it off. I mean, these are all things that are really, really important, but they're also crimes in the state of New York. They are, they're misdemeanors unless they're in furtherance of another crime. And that second crime, because Karen and I talked about this before we got on, doesn't have to be a felony. 
It could be two misdemeanors, like two wrongs don't make a right. Two misdemeanors can make a felony because if you're the misdemeanor of books and entry is covering up another crime, as long as it's a crime, misdemeanor or not, or felony, it creates a felony. And so the misdemeanor, and let me throw this one out at you, Karen, because we've talked about a lot of different ones. Is it money laundering? Is it, is it, um, is it tax evasion because you got a tax deduction on the Trump organization side for listing it as a legal expense back to Michael Cohen when it was really a hush money payment to Stormy, Stormy Daniels, which is not deductible by the Internal Revenue Code. Um, is it that? And then the, the latest one I want to throw at you, and, and maybe we could have our producer put it up on the screen, is New York Election Law 17-152. Now, I looked at 17-152. And I looked at the definition of election because everybody focused on this is a state crime, but this was a federal election. But if you look at the election law in the state of New York, it doesn't matter. Election is not defined as state or federal. It's just an election. And 17152 is a conspiracy to promote or prevent an election. Any two or more persons who conspire to promote or uh, prevent the election of any person to a public office by unlawful means and which conspiracy is acted upon by one or more of the parties shall be guilty of a misdemeanor. So if you're making an illegal campaign contribution, which in effect this is because you're trying to uh, gag Stormy Daniels from going public during a campaign which would wreck his chances, that's sort of unlawful means. So, and, and just one thing to put this in historical perspective, um, to, to, to compare Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Bill Clinton had this problem on the campaign trail too. Um, he had a lot of women that came out um, in that era in 92 and 91 and said, uh, me too. I also had an affair with the governor. He made an inappropriate pass at me. He touched me. We had sex. Um, in fact, it was colloquially referred to at the time in a totally politically incorrect way as among his campaign staffers as the bimbo eruptions, that these women who were being misogynistically called bimbos were coming out of nowhere and they were having to deal with them. The difference is that, that at least for that one, putting aside Monica Lewinsky, um, Bill Clinton didn't try to pay them off or have other people pay them off to get rid of them. He just dealt with them at press conferences. Donald Trump went this next step further on lawful means and a crime. So let me turn it to you. Do you think 17152 could be the crime or do you think there's some hole in my theory? No, no, it, look, it, the, the only hole in your theory about that is that, like, and the, the name of the case escapes me right now, but there's a uh, there's a, a case that that will that holds that in a federal in a presidential election or a federal election federal election crimes preempt the state election crime and so it's they're they're saying because of that because it would preempt it and the feds already passed on it that uh that therefore it wouldn't apply but I, you know i i am not as caught up in this as so many other people that this you that you do need to prove a second crime really because if you read the statute falsifying a business record in the first degree what it's about is is you know you falsify the business record you you um you 
intent, you, you intentionally deceive with the intent to deceive, um, you fraudulently, you know, enter a false business record. But the but the problem is, you know, what what makes it a felony is then and the language is, you intend to cover up or conceal a crime, not that you committed another crime or you're concealing right. a crime it's, it's so, that you intended so right. it's the intent to commit a crime or the intent to conceal a crime and so so you know i would argue as the prosecutor i'd say i would say the reason we know he intended to cover up or conceal a crime is because he was he was why else did he structure the payments over 11 times and why else did he lie about it and why else did he you know why I, I would say we don't know if his intent was to cover up or conceal michael cohen's crime of tax fraud that would account because it doesn't say who mm -hmm. had to commit the crime we don't know if he intended to conceal if he's truly the victim of extortion then he's doing it to cover up that crime Right? right. By him, in some ways, you know, because it doesn't say who and it doesn't say what. So it's just, it has to be a crime. And it could be one of the three that you mentioned, or it could be these other people or these so other. So here's, here's the question. Here's the question. And I think you, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to nerd out with you in a minute. And I think we've talked about this before. It is not necessary, is it, former Madam Prosecutor, that they charge a second crime. No. It's just that it's right. So they're not going to put on that's where everybody makes the mistake in mainstream media. They're like, what could the second crime that they would charge be? They don't have to charge. They just have to say it was in furtherance of another crime. It could be a stale dead crime that had already happened and somebody else's crime, as you've just outlined, it it's just that that is the object of the furtherance of the conspiracy, he, by the if way, you will. He could have also, because it's the intent to commit or conceal a crime, he could have also said to David Pecker, you know why I'm doing it this way? You know, or to Cohen or somebody else, or Kellyanne Conway or Hope Hicks or whoever, you know, he could have said to someone, you know, the reason I'm doing it this way is so that way I don't have to, I can deduct this on my taxes. But then at the time he chooses not to deduct it on his taxes, that still would count because the intent to commit a crime was there. Even if he didn't do it, he still did enough so to be guilty. This is why I love doing the show with you. It's just, I don't, and then I, I also hope that people like watching us do the show together, but that's, it's those kind of observations. Yeah. But, but look, we're, we're going to continue to follow this. I can't think of a better person for our audience to listen to and hear the analysis of the Karen Friedman Ignifolo. I'm just going along for the ride, trying to hold By it up way, my, end, my end of the bargain. Go ahead. They, they might charge a second crime. You said, right. you said do they have to? But they no, don't have, they to. Don't have to. But they, they might. So but you, I, think that's, I think that's the blind spot in a lot of analysis that, that people are thinking they have to, and what could that be? But we're going to talk about that. We're going to continue to follow this both here on the podcast, on the weekend edition as well, and then in the hot takes that Karen... Ben and me have been doing, God, almost on an hourly basis and during this indictment watch period, uh, indictment watch season. And we're going to talk about two really amazing other segments uh, as we move forward. We're going to talk about what is going on in the E. Jean Carroll case. The clock is ticking there. We're three weeks away from picking a jury in the civil fraud case for E. Jean Carroll um, in her claims against Donald Trump uh, in civil rape and for the second defamation that Donald Trump did after he was president. And then we're also going to talk about Jack Smith. He's had a big week in front of two, not one, but two chief judges of the D.C. Circuit Court because he, 
He had Beryl Howell, and then he picked up uh, Jeb Bozberg, who took over for a new seven-year term. And they're like 10-0 and 0 in stripping away the executive privilege from like every important person in Trump's inner sanctum is now naked in front of the grand jury without an attorney-client privilege, without an executive privilege. The only thing they got left is Fifth Amendment privilege if they think they've committed a crime. But we're going to talk about what that probably means for where Jack Smith is in his charging decisions, and it's to which grand jury. But we're going to talk about that next. Karen and I are professionals, but we're not that type of professional. And while we hopefully make people feel better about law and politics, um, we have a great sponsor that we're going to have come up next. They've been on a show before, and that's BetterHelp. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process especially because we're always growing and changing. The last few years especially have been a wild ride, filled with my own personal self-realizations and growth. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding. Because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I personally have benefited directly from therapy, allowing me to talk through and work through experiences in my past that were unknowingly having a major impact on the way I go about my day-to-day. Therapy is an incredibly helpful tool for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Over time, I've truly learned to become the best version of me. And look, therapy is for everyone, not just people who've experienced major trauma, because what you're working through matters. Never discount that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com legalaf today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash legal af you know we record some of these ads at different times i never know when they're going to come up so i'm always i'm as surprised as anybody when i see myself come up in one of these ads and i was like oh there there i am all right but we're back and we're let's let's uh, get get down to it let's talk first about e.g and carol i mean there's one major development and we'll spend a little time on it um cases going to trial civil rape uh, the case that is going to trial, we call Carol 2, because Carol 1 was her original filing for the defamation that she claims happened when Donald Trump, while president, denied that he had ever known E. Jean Carroll, knew who she was, um, raped her, met her in Bergdorf Goodman department store, um, or any of it, called her a liar, a hoax, a cheat, and everything else. That was defamation if it's not true and attacked her personally. But then that's Carol 1. But Carol 2 really has taken on a life of its own and has sort of gone uh, gone past Carol 1, and that is the civil rape claim that was brought, as the judge said today or, or this week in an opinion, within 10 minutes of the new statute allowing adult survivors of sexual battery to file their cases. And as I've said, E. Jean Carroll's was the first case to be filed. So that's now, along with a new 2022 defamation that Donald Trump did because he did, he did the exact same thing all over again. But now he doesn't have the protection of presidential immunity when he said it's a hoax. She's not my type. I never met her. That she's a liar. She changes her story and attacked her. That's Carol too. Carol too is going to trial. 
on the 25th of April in a federal courthouse in New York. Come hell or high water, as one of the judges likes to say, it's happening. Judge has already made rulings. Judge Kaplan has already made rulings. He's already said that the national inqu- that the uh, the the uh, testimony of two other women who say that they were also Me Too, also attacked by Donald Trump sexually, are going to be in front of the jury. And that infamous Access Hollywood hot mic moment when Donald Trump didn't know he was being recorded when he talked about um, pushing himself onto women. Uh, taking advantage of them, sexually assaulting them, and grabbing their genitalia. That's coming in in front of the jury as well. And now the judge is making other rulings, getting ready for this trial. So just this past week, the um, defense filed a motion for what we call motion for partial summary judgment, which is a way for the for the uh, defense or the plaintiff to say that certain issues on an undisputed factual record can be concluded or decided by the judge as a matter of law. You don't need a jury. Let's just make the decisions. And here is the facts, and here is the law. And judge, you apply the undisputed facts to the law. And if the judge finds that there are undisputed facts and the law is on your side, you may get a judgment before trial. And that's called summary judgment. Okay. They brought one saying that um, even if he said and did all of these things on social media on October 12th of 2022, um, in his Truth Social, where he again attacked in a long string, many screen social media post, Carol, that that was covered by what New York recognizes, as does every other state, some version of it, the absolute litigation privilege, which means in the state of New York, under Section 74 of the New York Civil Rights Law, if you are just fairly and accurately reporting a judicial proceeding, then by doing so, you you can't be sued for defamation because you're just fairly and accurately reporting a judicial proceeding. So the whole case turns on, the whole issue turns on whether, I mean, this is it, whether there has been a accurate report of the judicial proceeding by Donald Trump when he made the comments. Now, the way Donald Trump tried to weasel around this is that he said, well, I was just commenting about what the Carol One case was all about. And yeah, I took a pot shot at you, Judge Kaplan, <laughs> which he did, and the judge noted, um, and all these other. But but it's completely within, I mentioned the case. So if I mention the case, even though I then go on to attack um, mercilessly E. Jean Carroll again, that's covered by the privilege, right? And the judge said, not so fast. Um, I, but but he, he, he methodically, in a 20-page decision, went through it. And I'm going to hear Karen's opinion, and then I'll give you a couple of highlights which don't help Donald Trump on the way into his jury trial. Now, one last thing before Karen speaks. All of this briefing and motion practice by the lawyers on issues like you know, legal issues, like does this immunity privilege apply and the statute of limitations, the jury doesn't really know usually about any of this. By the time they get there, the case is sort of settled. The the judge along with the parties have settled on the law that's going to be ultimately charged to the jury. Uh, what are the elements of this claim? What are the elements of this defense? What are the elements of damage? What's the jury verdict form going to look like? That's all sort of, you know, by the time the jury gets the case and deliberations at the end, that's all settled. Many of this is settled before so that the lawyers can talk about it in opening. 
and say, this is the law you're going to see. This is what civil rape means. This is the elements of defamation. We're going to ask you at the close of the evidence to return a verdict in our favor and a judgment in our favor and all that. So that, but this stuff right now, yes, the jury's sitting at home that doesn't know they're the jury yet because they haven't been selected. They learn about it. But the jury as jury doesn't learn about these types of developments unless it, it addresses evidentiary issues that they have to be instructed on and that type of thing. Okay, so you've heard about it, Karen. What did you make of this decision and um, Trump's attempt to get rid of this defamation claim? You know, it's interesting because I look at this, yes, this is a defamation case, but it's also a rape case. Like to me at its core, this is a rape case. And yes, it's civil. And yes, it is also a defamation in it. To me, it all comes down to the rape because if he raped her, then, you know, you know, it all, it all rises and falls on, on whether or not it actually happened because truth is, the defense, right? To, you know, whatever, to, to, uh, defamation. And so I looked at this, what I found most interesting about the motion practice in this case was that the judge banned the lawyers from mentioning DNA evidence. Now I know you asked me a different question and you asked me about the defamation. Um, but I, you know, I'm not an expert on, that privilege that you talked about, or, you know, when, when it's, it, he definitely talked more than just about the litigation. He also talked about, again, repeating his, his, uh, attacks on her. And I'm certainly not an expert on whether that counts or not. I mean, and, and I don't have an opinion here or there, uh, about what the judge did there. I take that at face value that he was accurate, but like I said, I was much more interested in what he said about the DNA evidence and and the thing about the DNA evidence so you know the 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 posture of it is uh is that the is E. Jean Carroll came out and you know she saved the dress she was wearing that day and she claimed that there was DNA on it and that she that that would prove her case. And she was very public about that, right? Kind of like the, the Monica Lewinsky blue dress that we all remember, you know, the, when, when Bill Clinton said, you know, I never had sexual relations with that woman. And then as soon as she had her blue dress and he had his DNA on there, he started getting squirrely and saying, you know, well, just depends on the definition of sexual content, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, I, I just, I, I think that, um, I think it's just very powerful that she has that dress. The other thing is she the when when they when they tested the dress there was male skin cell fragments on there which again is pretty powerful and for a long time uh during the pendency of this case they um uh uh Roberta Kaplan who's the lawyer in this case not to be mistaken by Judge Lewis Kaplan um who's presiding over the case, asked for Trump's DNA sample, and he refused. He wouldn't give it. And that was very public. And then and then Takapina, who's his most recent attorney, comes forward after discovery has long been passed and closed. Takapina says, okay, now we'll do it. And the judge says, you know what? 
I'm not doing it now because discovery is closed. And, and uh, so you, so nice try. You're just trying to delay and this is going forward April 25th and you can't play that game. You know, when, when discovery is closed, it's closed. I also think um, Roberta Kaplan is not pushing for it because it might not be conclusive one way or another, given the fact that there might be a mixture, it probably is a mixture, which means it, it can be very difficult to, to determine if Donald Trump's DNA is in there, if it is a mixture. But I personally think it's a huge mistake. And I really, um, I really hate saying that because I think Roberta Kaplan is one of the most brilliant lawyers I know. I think strategically, it's a huge mistake to not want DNA in there. And I'll tell you why. Number one, jurors watch TV. And whether you watch Law and Order or CSI or any other television show, you know that DNA is is it, right? It's either there or it's not. And it's very dispositive. And jurors expect to hear about it, number one. Number two, jurors will have read about the publicity in this case where she has talked about the fact that she saved the dress. And so they're going to wonder, where is it? And, you know, in criminal cases, when, when we had situations like this, where there was no DNA, where we let's say we tested something and there was no DNA or there was insufficient DNA or there was a mixture, we 100% put on an expert to explain why you would not find expect to find DNA or why it's a mixture or why you can't why it's inconclusive you have to put an expert on to explain the absence of DNA in a case or why if there is DNA why it's inconclusive and i think the jury is going to want that they're going to expect it and without it it's a he said she said and frankly, they are going to know, like I said, they will have read the paper and, or I guess people don't read papers anymore. They will have read the stories online or watched the news and they will know about this dress. And by not explaining it, I think it is a huge strategic mistake. And it worries me in this case. Yeah, I think we're going to have to see. I mean, I know that I, I'm not surprised by it. I mean, Robbie Kaplan, the lawyer for E. Jean Carroll said two months ago, that she did not see this as a DNA case, obviously because there's a problem with DNA on the blue dress. Now, I, I believe I believe the witness when she says that she was so traumatized by what happened to her in the Bergdorf Goodman um, department store, not bathroom, for those that have gotten that wrong, dressing room, which is a more private area and a larger area, um, um, that she was so traumatized by it that she took that dress that she was wearing at that time. She stuck it in the back of coats in her closet um, and um, never really, rem you know, uh, remembered it again until she decided to to sue. But they look, I know Robbie Kaplan. I'm sure she tested the dress and there. It's inconclusive as the DNA because she did, and it is that. And there's been testimony yeah. about there, ha but then so, you still have to explain it. You have to well, explain it. Well, and the well, judge I, barred any mention of DNA, and I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I, I have to get my hands on the ruling on that, but I about exactly what he ruled. But um, they're going to have to do something about the blue dress because it's out there now. Whether they can mention it without the DNA, what, what were you wearing that day? That's we're not at DNA yet. I was wearing a blue dress. Did you keep the blue dress? I did. The quote You're not is, at the quote is "You're precluded from any testimony, argument." commentary or reference concerning DNA evidence. But that's not the blue dress. So if I'm the lawyer, if I'm Robbie, 
because you have to address your issue. I say, um, explain to the jury, let's go slow. Explain to the jury, did you know Donald Trump before? I did, casually in town, how I was a gossip columnist for for Elle magazine and in other places. I was also married at the time to a very well-known local news reporter, which she was. I bumped into him socially. Okay, on this particular day, did you, you know, or, or did you bump into him at Bergdorf Goodman? I did. How did that happen? I met him at the revolving doors. He knew me. I knew him. There was some banter. He asked to shop with me during the day. I thought that was weird, but I liked, you know, I knew him as a as a bachelor around town and I was single too. And so I walked around with him in the department store. What happened next? I got pushed into the dressing room um, and he then proceeded to sexually assault and rape me. What were you wearing that day? Do you recall? I do. How did you recall that? It's so long ago. I was wearing a blue dress. Well, how do you know that's sitting here now? Because I kept the dress. Why did you keep the dress? Because I was so traumatized because it. I just could never wear it again, but yet I couldn't throw it out. So it stood in the back of my closet behind coats. Do you have it today? I do. Move on. Next line of questions. Blue dress is in. DNA's not mentioned. That's the way you have to solve this problem. No, it doesn't solve it though, because the defense, you sum up and you say, you say, this is a he said, she said, ladies and gentlemen, there's no proof. There's no anything. He denies seeing no, her. He denies no, being No, it doesn't there. solve there's the no problem of the DNA, but you have to bring the dress in as a plaintiff's oh, yes. lawyer. No, of course yeah. you have to bring the dress in, but I agree with that. And you're going to put the dress into evidence, but every juror is going to say, okay, was there DNA or was there not? I don't understand. It's like, it's, I, I think you, I think what she had to do, yes, it's a mixture. It's wouldn't be dispositive. If I were her, I'd put on an expert to explain that because I think they're going to wonder. And look, maybe because it's not beyond a reason, if this was a beyond a reasonable doubt, standard yeah. if this was criminal this is 100% an acquittal yeah. maybe because it's only a you know preponderance well, of the evidence this know, is where you and I have different perspectives because you spent 30 years as a prosecutor and I spent 30 years as a defense and plaintiff's lawyer so uh, I, yes I'd love to if we had DNA in a civil case I'd be like oh my god we're by the way if we had DNA in a civil case and it was proven it was Donald Trump on the, this we wouldn't even yeah. be talking about a exactly. trial trial exactly. would be over settlement yes. would be had and we're <laughs> done right but right. that's not so we're gonna have to leave it to a jury of, of no, you're not right. his you're peers right. I keep forgetting this lower standard <laughs> 51% you know it's, it's a feather on this it's a I, feather I on the scales of justice that's all it is I can't get used to it I just can't get used to it I'm so, so let, like you know yeah are you kidding so, no DNA so we could spend all day talking about E. Jean Carroll, right, but we sorry, can't because our a our producers will kill us, and the audience will be like, "What's going on with Jack Smith?" There's developments. Yeah, salty. <laughs> Salties are, but I but I getting little comments from him. So uh, Jack producer. Smith, Jack Smith, at the top of the podcast, to show you how up to the moment we are, the top of the podcast, I said there was a, a series of rulings both by Beryl Howell, who was then the chief judge. To, uh, 10 days ago, and Jeb Boesberg, who's now the chief judge now of the D.C. Circuit Court, about all things grand jury, in which a whole line of um, executive branch people um, had their executive privilege stripped away from them and compelled to testify before the grand jury. National Security Advisor John uh, Ratliff, National Intelligence Director Robert O'Brien, 
deputy attorney, um, deputy assistant, Homeland Security acting, because he never really got the job, Ken Cuccinelli, Mark Meadows, and then separately, um, Mike Pence, then the vice president under a separate set of rulings and, uh, and separate privileges. Now, and that's all true. And they were all compelled to testify. Interestingly enough, two weeks ago, when Evan Corcoran, M. Evan Corcoran, the lawyer for Donald Trump for all things Mar-a-Lago and the documents issue, was also stripped of his attorney-client privilege and compelled to testify. Um, the, uh, and there was a appeal by Corcoran and Trump to the D.C. Circuit Court, Court of Appeals, and they lost 3-0. They did not take an appeal to the Supreme Court, and Evan Corcoran went in the next day and testified. It all happened within like 72 hours. Briefing, appellate decision, testimony, no appeal to the Supreme Court. So that seemed to be his MO, and Evan Corcoran testified. But now that all this inner circle, including White House aides Dan Scavino and Stephen Miller, Trump's up in arms, and now it's been reported as recently as like an hour ago that Trump is going to appeal, and here we have it here is appealing Beryl Howell. So it's not the one about Mike Pence because Beryl Howell didn't do Mike Pence. It's Beryl Howell's decision about that list of people that I just read out, Ratcliffe, O'Brien, Cuccinelli, Scavino, Miller, Meadows, are all appealing back to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, meaning we got to wait for the wheel to spin and the random assignment of three new judges Last time with e, e, uh, with M. Evan Corcoran, the three judges happened to be two Biden and one Obama appointee. So that was like cherry, 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 jackpot. <laughs> now we're going to have to see what three get pulled up uh, now. Is it going to be a couple of Trumpers? Is it going to be? And and once we see the panel, then Karen, me, and Ben can more accurate, accurately report what's going to happen next. But we got to wait. They're going to take the appeal. This could go fast. It went really, really fast with Evan Corcoran. I'm not kidding. 72 hours, panel at the Court of Appeals was appointed, panel ordered a briefing schedule that was hours long, not weeks or months long. They compressed into like six months, four months, into 72 hours and, and entered a ruling. That's going to happen here. Now, based on that, we'll have to see what he does next. Last time I predicted that when Evan Corcoran's appellate ruling came out against Trump that he was going to appeal to the Supreme Court and take his chances with the right-wing MAGA that he had appointed, but he didn't. So first steps first. Let's see what the D.C. Court of... Let's see what the panel is. Let's see what the D.C. Court of Appeals does, and then let's see what he does. In the meantime, those people are... are They run in place. They're not going to testify until there's an ultimate ruling. Now, in addition to that, separately, and it hasn't yet been appealed, that's a Mike Pence issue, um, maybe with Donald Trump, is Mike Pence's assertion of speech and debate immunity, along with executive privilege, to avoid testimony, testifying at all to the grand jury, um, just as he did to the Jan 6 committee. That ruling just came out. That was issued by the replacement for Beryl Howell, Jeb Boesberg, the new chief judge of the circuit. And Pence has said, oh, we're making our way through it. I see there's certain aspects of it where he agreed with me on speech and debate. And he says, I don't have to testify about what I did personally on Jan 6, but I do have to testify about any crimes that Donald Trump committed. We'll get back to you about our decision on appeal. So that hasn't happened yet. So that all the appeal and the thing we just put up, it's on everybody but uh, uh, including Mark Meadows, but Mike Pence. What do you think it means uh, from a prosecutor standpoint, Karen, about these particular people 
uh, and what Jack Smith is now focused on and how close he is. Are we on the one-yard line, the five-yard line? Are we at the end? Where are we with his prosecution? And which prosecution are we talking about? So I think it's pretty clear we're talking about January 6th when it comes to Pence. Uh, And I think that the, you know, whereas Evan Corcoran, I think, is is more clearly Mar-a-Lago. Um, but I think, I think most of these that you were talking about, the Mark Meadows, John Ratcliffe, O'Brien, Cuccinelli, you know, all, all the ones that are, are, um, losing their bids to invoke the, this, these privileges. Um, I think we're talking about January 6th and the insurrection. And, you know, just backing up a minute, what are these privileges, these executive privilege or a speech and debate clause privilege that people are are trying to assert? You know, when you when you think about it, legally, anyone can be compelled to testify unless you assert certain privileges. So there's the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. There's an attorney-client privilege where where it, it is you know, it is designed to encourage people to speak openly to your attorney and therefore you don't, that there, there's that privilege. You don't have to talk about what someone told you. There's a marital privilege designed to uh, encourage husbands and, or I should say spouses, to speak to one another openly and be able to have a relationship where you don't have to worry that anything you say in the context of that relationship is going to be called into court. And there's the priest, uh, priest penitent, you know, privilege. And, you know, all, all, there's different privileges all, again, to encourage people to be able to speak openly and not worry about be, being prosecuted for, uh, for doing that. But in addition to that are these other privileges, the executive privilege, which is in the executive branch so that the people in the executive branch and, and, and case law has, has definitely, uh, has made this, um, has broadened it to include staff, you know, to, to include staff, you know, in, in the executive branch, you know, that it, that it's so that again, so that you can talk about important policy issues and, and be able to talk about the pros and cons of something and, and not have that come into court. And, and then the final one is this speech and debate clause privilege that for the first time is now being applied to uh, Pence, the vice president. Normally, because he was the vice president, the executive privilege would be the one that he would try to assert. And he did try to assert that uh, with respect to certain statements. But on January 6th, the one in particular that he was focusing on was the the speech and debate clause privilege because of his role in certifying the election. He, as the president of the Senate, has that ministerial role. And the judge here ruled that Pence does have to testify in the grand jury and and the speech and debate clause does apply to him. And so there's certain questions he doesn't have to answer, but it doesn't cover everything. And so, so I just wanted to remind everybody about what these privileges are and what they're for, because we, we talk about them so openly uh, and sometimes we forget what they are. 
What that says to me, though, and the way prosecutors work, just to just to answer your question, is that Jack Smith is uh, very far along in his investigation. You know, normally the way prosecutors work is is they work their way up to the big fish. And I don't think it gets any bigger than Mike Pence. You know, he was the target and the victim of the violence uh, on January 6th. He's also somebody who is going to be able to put in context what uh, what Donald Trump was saying to him before January 6th and the pressure that he was putting on, um, you know, on Pence to to um, participate in this illegal scheme to overturn the election results. You know, Pence was hunted down by these followers during the insurrectionist attacks. And, and most of that is on video because most of that was captured on video. So I don't know that the day of the stuff that, that they're saying that the judge said is covered by the speech and debate clause privilege that he doesn't have to answer. I don't know if that's as important as the conversations leading up to it where Trump was pressuring, pressuring, pressuring uh, to, um, to, to do this, you know, and to th literally throw the election. And so I, I think it, it really shows that they are, this they're, they're this close to Trump. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. Because where else is there to go after Pence, right? There's the pro the prosecution is if they can get that testimony and the rest of these this testimony, I think Jack Smith is ready to make a recommendation to uh, Merrick Garland, and which I think will include seeking an indictment. Yeah. So we're going to have to follow that really closely. Well, I think everything will happen after the appeal. The appeal will probably be a rocket. A rocket docket appeal, like we saw with Evan Corcoran. What do you make PCC. of that, by the way? The speed. I think I think the Department of Justice told them that they're very close to um, making a charging decision and get, asking the grand jury to return an indictment, and they needed one last witness in Mar-a-Lago. That was Evan Corcoran, and they were like, "Okay, we hear you. We're not going to make this a four-month thing. We're going to time's on. You know, we're on the clock." And I think they're going to try to make the similar argument. It's probably already been made in the secret court. Um, so the record's already clear with the with the Department of Justice, and I, so I think there'll be an accelerant on this so, uh, appeal as well. I so I have a slightly I have one addition to what you were going to say. So I agree with you that that's what that's what Jack Smith is probably telling the judge. But lots of prosecutors will tell a judge, "This is all we need, one last one," and they're still put give you a four month briefing schedule. So I think it's also the judges are fed up with delay, delay, delay. I think the I think the judges have realized with all the uh, legal proceedings around the country, that Donald Trump is somebody who uses the, the justice and legal system and, and uses it as a tool to, for his, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be used to disrupt and delay and, and um, slow down. It's, it's, it's supposed to be used to make legitimate legal arguments. And when people have legitimate legal arguments to make, you, it sometimes takes time to consider them and to decide them. But somebody like Donald Trump, I think has worn out his welcome in the courts. I think they realize that he just, again, makes claims and, and legal arguments that are illegitimate and frivolous. He's been sanctioned for them and, and sometimes just ridiculous because he uses it as a tool to delay. And I think the judges are fed up and have had enough. And that's why yeah. I think they didn't do it here. I think, 
I think you're right about that. There, he, Donald Trump is 0-90 in courtrooms. He's been sanctioned and penalized by federal courts for frivolous filings. He's he's frequently moved between the federal courts and the state courts, trying to put them at odds with each other and have failed every time, including at the appellate level, including the U.S. Supreme Court, um, when it comes to documents and his handling of certain presidential issues, have ruled almost invariably against Donald Trump. And there's a concept in that judges often refer to when they when they can't when they can't find a rule or a statute they refer to two things one their inherent authority to do something as judges and two the fair administration of justice and when they don't think that that the, when they think administration of justice is being interfered with as you've just you know, so eloquently put about Donald Trump, they're like, sure, we'll give you an appeal, but we'll give it to you in 72 hours. Um, and then let's move this along because you're going to, you know, they've already made their, you know, they've already sort of made their decisions. I think it also depends on which of the three panelists get picked. It happened to be Biden, Biden, Obama. And they were like, move it along. If it turns out to be two Trumpers, uh, maybe they give them the benefit of the doubt and stretch this thing out because, you know, when things are going badly for you, you want to make them move you know, slower. And so we'll see. I think when we see the panel, we're going to know. But listen, this has always been, I love Wednesdays. I can't wait to get to the end of the, you know, end of the day to do the podcast with you. Um, I'm like a little kid in a candy shop. And um, <laughs> hopefully that enthusiasm that you and I bring to every episode is infectious with our listeners and viewers. But we've reached the end of another midweek edition of Legal AF with Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Ignifolo. Shout out to the legal AFers and to the Midas Mighty. And ultimately, if you want to help the show, which most people that are on here do, the way to do it is easy. And it's really free. If you watch us on YouTube, and we welcome you to do that, it's fun for us to, to see the live chat and be involved like this. Go on the audio that drops um, the next morning or 10 or 12 hours later and and subscribe to the audio and listen to the audio. That's free. Subscribe to the Midas Touch Network on YouTube. They just passed 1 million subscribers, and it was right after our Saturday show. I'm very proud about that. Put them over the top. So do that. So if you watch, you can, if you watch us, listen to us. If you listen to us only, and you're listening only to us now, go and watch us on YouTube. And that's also free and free subscribe there. And then you can rate and review us and give us five stars. That helps with the algorithm. And all that put together and that giant stew that I just described, what happens? What happens is we've increased our audience by 10 times over the last year. And we went from sort of scraping along the bottom of the podcast rankings to now consistently hitting the top 50 news globally for um, uh, top 50 ranking for news globally on Apple Pod. Who would have thought? That's because of you, not because of us. We're doing the programming. We're doing the content. But you're doing the support and the listening and the loyal following. And for that, we are very appreciative and we thank you. So until next week, Karen Freeman Ignifolo, I always love giving you the last, the last word. What's the last word? We got to go because Salty needs to. That's Salty's the last word? Yeah, he's yelling at us to finish. All right. We got to go. I'm double parked. I got to pull it out and do alternate side of the street parking. Exactly. We'll, see, we'll see everybody next Wednesday. Okay.